For decades, milk has been fueling women marathon runners as the OG performance drink. And in the new docu-series Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers takes us on a journey of self-discovery as she meets several groups of empowered women runners to find out what drives them, what fuels them, and what pushes them to go the distance. And in the process, she learns that she too can be a distance runner. You can watch the series at runningsuckstheseries.com and register for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, uh, before we get going, I'm Aaron Lammer. I'm the co-host of the show, and I actually have a new show. It's called Coin Talk. It's co-hosted by Jay Caspian Kang, who you may have heard on this podcast. Uh, he is with uh, HBO's Vice News Tonight. He writes for New York Times Magazine. Both of us have become totally obsessed with cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin and Ethereum and Ripple over the last few months, and we decided to do a show so we could waste time in a public forum talking about them. We'll have on all kinds of guests from traders to developers to gamblers uh, to tech journalists, all kinds of people are going to come on and talk to us about this topic. So if you are curious about crypto, even if you don't really know much about it, I encourage you to check out the show. Go to the podcast app of your choice. Type in Cointalk. Every episode's totally free. And if you want even more, you can go to medium.com slash Cointalk. The show is produced in partnership with Medium. And they're going to have full transcripts of every episode, show notes with reading lists, all kinds of stuff. So if you've been uh, curious about the world of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, give it a shot. If you're not yet curious, save your life and do not become curious because it will uh, invade your entire brain space. Okay, here's the show. Hello, welcome to the Long Form Podcast, our first show of 2018. Welcome back. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the break. We played some reruns, yeah, did we? We played some we reruns. Did. I have no idea what's been <laughs> happening. <laughs> Don't worry, you guys. Figured it out. I've been gone. I hope everyone else has been gone, too. Uh, this week on the show, I talked to Asmat Khan, um, who you may remember from a article that she wrote with Anand Gopal, listen to his long-form podcast, uh, called The Uncounted, that was a systematic uh, review of the official and unofficial story of civilian deaths from American drone strikes. They uncovered a lot of pretty damning information about what was being reported and what was actually happening on the ground, interviewed hundreds of people in Iraq. Uh, this is like an incredible story and, and her story of how she came to do this kind of work from originally starting in an academic background is really fascinating. I'm so glad you got her on that. Uh, the story really is incredible. It was on our top 10 of the year for 2017 with long form. And also they did a uh, two part series of it on the daily yes. New York times podcast, which I think was one of the best pieces of audio of the year. Uh, it's really incredible. I'm, I'm hyped she's on, man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She, she actually talked about the, um, sort of feeling at the end of the interview like she had not uh, done enough to, to describe the main character in this story. Um, so if you are interested in that, you should totally go and listen to that daily piece where you can hear him in his own uh, in his own words. And then uh, you can listen to the host of the daily, Michael Barbaro, here in Longford. We Paris. really cover all of the bases here. You pretty much can just hotlink any name and then go back uh, to their long form podcast. If you're hotlinking names of journalists, you Bang! might you might 
need an email newsletter, uh, there's no better place to do it than MailChimp. I actually, you guys hear about my new show, Coin Talk. I was just signing up for Coin Talk's uh, email newsletter. Guess guess who I went with? I'm gonna say MailChimp. Oh yeah, <laughs> so easy, so reliable. And uh, we thank them for their sponsorship into 2018. They've been with us since the beginning. And I am not lying when I say they make this show possible. Uh, one other thing to just mention is yeah, that we have a uh, special guest in the studio. In the studio. Yeah. You can't hear her because she's uh, eating. But young Lucy Lammer has made her longest trip ever of her whole life. And she's here in the studio. I wonder if that's a disappointment for the longest trip. <laughs> Yeah, um, she just could have listened to this later. We almost got her on the mic, but uh, I believe she is now feeding, so uh, that'll have to to wait. But uh, uh, welcome, uh, welcome, Lucy Lammer. And now here's Aaron with Osmot Khan. Welcome, Osmot Khan. Thank you for having me. I don't know that much about how you started off doing what you do, so. I um, encountered your reporting several times, I think, before this most recent really big New York Times piece, The Uncounted. But where did you get your start doing journalism stuff? Sure. Well, I was in graduate school when I first started to think seriously about journalism. And I was writing a thesis about gender and development. I was in England. And I'd written something you know, pretty thick. Yes. And it was so depressing to me that maybe three people would read it. <laughs> And I thought, lol, no, I am going to find a way to reach people with work that's more accessible. I found academia to be really hard in terms of the language it uses and some of the ways in which it includes theory. What were you getting into in academia before you became disillusioned? <laughs> what, what were the I mean, happier it's still days fantastic. I was doing women's <laughs> yeah, I was doing women's studies, and yeah. specifically at the time, I was looking at gender mainstreaming and relief work. Uh-huh. So efforts to administer aid or to deal with natural disasters or crises in ways that was thoughtful about gender roles and how do you accurately and helpfully assist populations. Mm. And it's interesting work, but, you know, what I cared about most, which at the time and still is uncovering injustice and holding the powerful to account, I really wanted to reach people. When you're going down that path academically, I don't know anything about this, and you're doing something like studying aid, is that with an eye towards eventually working for an NGO and doing that kind of work directly? Or is there a divide between that as theory and and practice? Well, it could be. So I was doing a women's studies master's at Oxford. And what I had been looking at was the Pakistan earthquake of 2005. And I'd been on the ground working in Pakistan shortly after the earthquake in the summer of 2006. And so I had field experience, but I was really interested in academia. I'd done a lot of my theory-based work had been about post-colonial feminist theory. And, and these are interesting things, but really what I would say is it gave me incredible lenses for looking at the world, seeing different forces of oppression and marginalized groups, intersections, understanding how there are vulnerable people who whose stories never get told, who people never humanize, who frankly are not on the radars of most Americans. And so that was important to me. And that's when I started to think about, well, what do people, how do they consume news most? And at the time it was television. And so I 
I went back to my hometown in Michigan, and I worked in local news at a local NBC affiliate <laughs> briefly. But I basically, that was the summer of 2008. Yeah. And until September of 2008, Michigan was a battleground state. And so there were a lot of political visits. And I took these clips that I had, and I straight up just moved to Pakistan, where there are dozens of TV channels. Ten years before that, there was one. Yeah. And Musharraf had, you know, then President Musharraf had privatized the media. So you had all of these channels pop up, and you have this incredibly invested population and of people who are fascinated by and consumed with the news. And I took these clips from Michigan and I just said, listen, I know you're going to be producing coverage of the 2008 election in the United States. Let me help you produce that coverage. I have experience in covering this. It was very limited at the time, but I did know the U.S. political system pretty well. And so I pitched myself backwards and and it worked out. I got a job at the second most watched Urdu channel in Pakistan, and they were soon to be launching an English channel. And... It was such an amazing time. 2008, there had just been you know, a president who had been forced to step down. There was this escalation of drone strikes in Pakistan's tribal areas. There was this lawyer's movement to reinstate the Supreme Court justice who'd been deposed. And so there were so many fascinating things happening. And I was just getting to get a front seat to all of it. And through the lens of the local population, if that makes sense, right? If I were pitching to American outlets from Pakistan, I would have had to really narrowly pitch stories that would resonate with the American public. But there I was getting just thrown into these amazing situations. And I mean, I also had my ass handed to me. It was a, I spent about a year there and um, I wound up having to leave under not the best of circumstances. But the time when I was there was just so amazing. I learned so much. Okay. I got I'm going to rewind back. Here. Mm-hmm. So what is this town you're from in Michigan like? And is your family Pakistani? They're of origin. Uh, oh. I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Yeah. And uh, I don't know if you've heard of Grand Rapids. I've heard of it, but I don't. There are a lot of different like part. There's a lot of different Michigans in, in my experience. What this What was the Michigan <laughs> that you grew up in like? So Grand Rapids then when I was growing up is very different than it is today, or at least its reputation is super different. Uh, when I was growing up, it was, I mean, there's a large Dutch community, the DeVos family, the Van Andel family, they hail from from these sorts of areas. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it was the first stop on Sarah Palin's book tour was the Grand Rapids Barnes and Noble. It was the last stop of the Trump campaign in this last election. So it definitely has these Republican leanings. Um, when I was growing up, there was an influx of refugees. So I watched the Muslim population uh, in which I grew up really exponentially grow. Um, You know, you saw refugees from Kosovo and other countries that were coming over the years as wars continued across the world. Um, So that's Grand Rapids in a nutshell. (laughs) Now it's known for being an art town. There's an art prize there and people come from across the country to see the art. And so that's really what Grand Rapids is known for today. So was this period you worked in Pakistan your first stint living there? I had lived there in 2006 in Pakistan-administered Kashmir. So it's the portion of Kashmir that is, uh, you know, recognized as Pakistani territory uh, by most countries uh, where the earthquake had happened. Mm-hmm. And I lived in this little village called Garid Bata. And my father is from the tribal areas of Pakistan, which are, you know, where those drone strikes take place. He's from a very specific part called Kurram Agency. And so... <laughs> Growing up, you know, he really wanted his children to be acclimated to the world he came from. And so he would just send me and my siblings, there are four of us, um, and I have two older half-brothers, but he would send the four of us 
to Pakistan every summer, sometimes alone. And we would wind up going to his village and having to learn Pashto and, you know, eat the chickens that we'd befriended as pets and, and that sort of thing. So it was, I think, helpful. So by the time I moved there in 2008, I certainly had experiences living there in the past or working there. But the news business there is a completely different territory. Yeah. I mean, what were your experiences like becoming both becoming a reporter for the first time and then reporting in a place that was not native to you? So again, because there there was such a growth of TV channels, what yeah. a lot of these channels did and, and what Express News, the Urdu channel that I was working at, what they did was before launching this English channel, they hired a bunch of Colombian CUNY journalism school professors to come to Pakistan and actually teach these young hires the business. So mm-hmm. actually, it was a pretty great crash course in scripting, writing, uh, things that I'd done a little bit of in Grand Rapids, but I mean... In Grand Rapids, the, the stories that were things like rash outbreak at Comstock Park High School affects <laughs> two students, right? Right. And you'd film the letter that went home to parents. In yeah. Pakistan, it was like 50 dead bodies discovered in a truck of immigrants trying to go from Balochistan to Iran or right. something like that. And so it was it was very different and so fun and often sad, but you know it felt you had this sense of urgency and importance to what I was doing. I think. I felt that very strongly. And so there was this rush I got from it and from putting it out into the world and seeing people react. What was it like reporting on the place that you were from when you were um, working for the TV station in um, Michigan? I mean, it was really brief. I really was, I wasn't even, it was like an internship, but really I wasn't a student. So it was more like a job shadow thing for like several months. <laughs> yeah. And, um, it was interesting. I mean, yeah. Grand Rapids is where I grew up. It was a lot of community stuff, and that's not to downplay its importance. Like yeah. I said, I felt like the the election made you know what I was doing there more relevant. But I don't want to overstate its <laughs> importance. This was really just the stepping stone I used yeah. to get the job that, that I was trying to get in Pakistan. And you kind of had to leave Pakistan at a specific period of time. Yeah. So I was near Swat. You know, this is the time when the Pakistani Taliban had been bombing girls' schools in Swat, had overtaken territory, and were being interviewed on Pakistani TV channels. And one of the things that we had done was we came to cover the Pakistani military's campaign to rid the Pakistani Taliban from the areas around Swat. And when I was there, in I think I was specifically in a town called Mardan, near SWAT. And I got a call on my cell phone from somebody claiming to be a militant under the command of Beitullah Mesud, who was this wanted Pakistani Taliban leader. And this person on the phone threw a a bunch of epithets at me and just said, listen, we're going to kill you in 15 days. And, you know, I, I hung up the phone, called my boss. They pulled our entire team out of Mardan, sent us back to Lahore. And I think I left the country for a few weeks, came back, continued to report. Things were fine. And then I started getting calls constantly from people claiming to be members of Beitullah Mesud's Pakistani Taliban army. And we're going to kill you in 15 days. We're going to kill you in 14 days. And then we're going to kill you in 12 days. And I'd be like, you skipped a day. <laughs> um, but they knew a lot about me. They knew the cars that I was going to places in. They would text me the license plate numbers. They would tell me where I was at a certain time. And it got to the point where even special police or 
people who were there and trying to stop this from happening couldn't do anything about it. So it just felt like the wisest thing, even though I don't believe that this was Beitullah Mesud and the Pakistani Taliban that were doing this, I just thought the wisest thing to do would be to leave. And so I, I did. Do you know why you were targeted? I don't. I can only speculate, and yeah. I prefer not to. <laughs> right on. <laughs> Maybe uh, some man I pissed off. <laughs> I don't know. I really don't know. So you came back to the United States after that. And what would you just say to someone who both wanted to do like on the ground work um, and like learn these skills and do it in a culture that they didn't grow up in? Yeah, I mean, I would tell people to try to learn the language. I think that's so important um, as much as possible and not just necessarily beforehand, but to to do so there. And I grew up speaking Urdu, but with an accent. And when I got to Pakistan for that time period, I definitely hired a tutor and wanted to be taught all of the words I didn't know, things like oil rig, (laughs) Um, (laughs) language that I would need to use and know. But I think language is one of the most important things to do. Uh, I would certainly emphasize getting, looking at local news outlets, some of the English language papers or TV shows or news networks there. It's an incredible way to look at a country and get a sense of it that you wouldn't get if you were singularly working for American outlets. And I would recommend really just moving, getting to a place and just throwing yourself into something. If you can save up a little bit and give that a try, do it because it has incredible payoffs. There's nothing. Some of the best reporters I know were the ones who really got into the environment they were in and they didn't go there and just hang out with expats. I hate that term, but um, they didn't go there just and hang out with Western journalists or aid workers. They just really integrated themselves into the populations that they were covering and that made all the difference. Hey, it's Max. I'm going to put things on hold for just a second and uh, tell you a little bit about a sponsor this week. It's my dog Reba's favorite sponsor. It's BarkBox. BarkBox is a delivery service, four to six natural treats or super fun toys curated around a surprise theme show up at your door every month. And let me tell you, part of the uh, joy of BarkBox is that the doorbell is uh, is a very exciting thing for Reba. Every time the doorbell rings, she rushes to the door, and uh, 99 times out of 100, it has nothing to do with her. But once a month, that doorbell's for Reba because her bark box is here, and she's thrilled. She knows it immediately. I open it up, and it's filled with delicious, all-natural treats and uh, toys the likes of which she's never seen. Furry, squeaky, delightful. Here's another thing that I really like about BarkBox. If, by chance, they send something that Reba's not into, that's fine. You can send it back, and they'll send you something else that she will love for free. Because the people at BarkBox are all about dog happiness. And it's free shipping uh, anywhere within the continental United States. So it's like uh, one time. You sign up one time, and then every month you're doing something nice for your dog. Go ahead and do it. And do it at BarkBox.com slash longform. That's BarkBox.com slash longform. If you sign up at that URL, you'll get a free extra month of BarkBox when you subscribe to a six or 12 month plan. Again, that's BarkBox.com slash longform. Make uh, make your dog happy. Let's get back to Aaron and Osmot. I interviewed uh, your co-writer, your colleague, yeah. uh, Anand Gopal, and he was like, 
yeah, I just showed up in Kabul and like went and stayed at this like migrant workers guest house. And I was like, every time I was like, don't do that. No one do that. That's not a good idea at all. I mean, your experiences in Pakistan, just like sort of like reverse engineering how you're going to get a job and go there. It's kind of an extraordinary story that it it worked at all. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't know if it's that extraordinary. I feel like what both Anand and I did, and he did that in Afghanistan. I did something. I mean, I wasn't staying at a slop house. Yes. <laughs> he called it that because they used to like slop the nightly yeah. meal into a bucket. Um, you know, as a woman, I don't think I would have been able to do that safely, but certainly just enmeshing myself in as much as possible was important to me. And I think that it can be easy to move abroad and yep. then to singularly hang out with other Americans or Westerners, especially if you're a freelancer, right? You rely on one another for, you know, to share fixers or to share a trip and the costs of something. It makes total sense. But I do think that it's so important to try to, and I think that's, you know, one of the things that Anand and I, we have a lot in common when we've been reporting. And the reason why we teamed up is that we do have, I think, a respect for ground realities and and wanting to humanize local populations that we're covering as much as possible. I want to talk about that whole story and that collaboration, but you use the phrase, um, not safe for women, and... I'm curious what that means to you and a lot of the things you did, particularly in doing the story, The Uncounted, um, going into territories in Iraq that were recently controlled by ISIS. Well, they sound like things things to be that are unsafe uh, for either gender, but I'm curious what your experience is like that. And also when you were getting going in this career and you were going to Pakistan and you were um, having interactions with people in the um, tribal areas, like... What was it like to go into this career as a woman? Well, I, I want to be so clear about the fact that being a woman and doing this reporting actually offers so many assets. There are so many parts of it that are just available to a woman that wouldn't be available to a man. So when I was in Afghanistan in 2015 working on a, an investigation called Ghost Schools, looking at U.S.-funded education efforts, I could just pop on a burqa and travel freely anywhere. And when we went through checkpoints, the men at these checkpoints couldn't ask me questions, right? And I would fly through these checkpoints that my male colleagues could not get through or would struggle with or would be stopped for questioning at. And so there are so many advantages to being a woman reporter. And this is something a lot of women reporters who've worked in the region have talked about. But I think as a woman who speaks some of the languages in the places that I'm in, uh, it's a little bit different. It's like a different middle ground where sometimes I'm still judged by the cultural standards that local women might be judged against um, because I'm not overtly to them a Westerner or they know that I'm Muslim and that I or that I have a Muslim name and they recognize that and might treat me a little bit differently. But, you know, in, in large crowds, people will part for you and allow you through depending on what you're doing. I mean, I've also been <laughs> pinched during a live hit on television <laughs> in Pakistan. That, that's happened to me as well. But really, it, it varies. I think that women have opportunities and advantages when reporting sometimes, and then you have challenges. And so Iraq was a place where actually, as a woman, I found myself, it was, for me at least, easier to operate than Afghanistan, easier to operate even in some ways than Pakistan. I really, really liked reporting in Iraq. Tell me why, and, and also tell me, and I know that there's a lot of misconceptions in a lot of places like about what a journalist is or you aspire, you this or you that, like when you present yourself openly, hi, 
I am working on a piece for the New York Times or whoever you're um, writing for. How do people take that in? So I actually get accused of being a spy or asked about being a spy often. And I think that has less to do with anything gender related than it is the nature or the specificity and granular detail I get into. Right. And it's I mean, it makes sense, right? Who else would be collecting this detailed information? So when I just was remembering a situation in Kayara, which is one of the towns that I did extensive investigation in for the uncounted, in this town, I was meeting with this local sheikh. And at that point, I'd been reporting in Kayara for a few months. I'd come so many times. I knew exactly who had been killed by airstrikes in this town, who'd been executed by ISIS. And I was just asking him about some people, and he was stunned that I knew more detail than I think he had in some cases. And so, it, you know, he immediately was like, in this case, it was a fun joke, right? Like, she must be a spy. What is she doing here? And I think he may have believed it. Um, but that happens a lot. It happened in Afghanistan in more sinister ways. Uh, I was at the at a contractor, a local contractor who it seemed at the time had really embezzled the money for the building of a school that was in U.S. military records had been built, but in reality was unfinished and empty. And the children who should have been studying there were across the street studying in a mosque where just the males got science and math while the girls were only taught the Quran. And it didn't make sense that the school wasn't operating and it came down to this contractor and I show up at his place and I knew a lot of details. I think he didn't understand why I knew and why I cared because nobody bothered to ask him about any of this. And so his immediate thing was to call my translator and accuse me of being a spy and call the translator to come back to his place without me and talk to him and answer to him. And, you know, how dare he work with a Western spy and those sorts of things happen. And I mean, I I, I guess in some ways I see it as (laughs) a compliment that the way that I'm reporting is it may raise these flags, but it's for a good reason. It's because right. what I'm doing is accurate and detailed. It's what a spy would be interested in, right? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it is sort of like flattering that like um, uh, to a local contractor, I guess, also that like a spy would be interested in his like non-renovation business or whatever. <laughs> well, he was the brother of the district governor and okay. had a really interesting setup going yeah. that, in fact, you know, I would later learn he had been brought up in U.S. intelligence documents that showed, and this was this was actually helpful in my reporting, it showed in these intelligence documents that uh, U.S. military intelligence analysts knew him and knew the district governor to sort of be operating this scheme, this sort of corruption side business, but felt like they had to work with him. And so it was acknowledged in their own records. They'd studied it. They'd known it. And yet, they partnered with him. And, and that's why schools that were not finished wound up being built, wound, wound up existing, why these so-called yep. ghost schools exist in a place like Afghanistan, because exactly that was happening. And yes, and in many cases, intelligence analysts knew about that kind of corruption. So what was so great about it reporting from Iraq? Just the access, the way in which people were so welcoming, uh, the fact that I felt like people were very comfortable seeing women and, and many of the places that I was going to were very comfortable inviting me into their homes or very comfortable. I didn't have to bundle up the same ways that I did in Kandahar, things like that. Yeah. When you're conceiving of a project like this, what level of your personal safety comes into play? So, I mean, I think obsessively about safety and I basically function whenever I'm in these places as though I'm responsible for my own safety. Mm-hmm. And there might be you know, every news organization has 
people that they'd like you to work with and they have some kind of a security plan and I'll do all of that. But I basically take it on myself. I have this idea that I am responsible for that. So just to give you a sense, you know, I do as much research as possible, but I'll before I have any meeting, I will make sure that I know if some terrible accident were to happen, that I know, you know, I have the Google Earth images, I know how to get back to where I need to be on my own if I got lost or if I got separated. I could, on foot, make my way back. Do I know the path I would need to take? Things like that. Um, You know, who are the local players in these areas? Who should I be wary of? Who should I avoid? Things like making sure that people don't know I'm coming in advance makes a big difference. You know, so how on the DL is my trip? All of these sorts of things that I'm obsessively sort of thinking about. And then, of course, there's the whole digital safety and security protocol. And, you know, who can I rely on for help if I need it? And and that sort of thing. How long elapsed from when you pitched this story till it came out? And what were the origins of like, what, what what did this look like when you first started thinking about it? So I first started thinking about it in January, February of 2016. And it was really, it struck out to me as so important because of the numbers. So I think early into that time period, the United States was saying that they had killed, and this had been maybe a year and a half of bombing, that they had killed 25,000 ISIS fighters in Iraq and Syria. And I didn't understand those numbers because at the same time, they were saying that the numbers of ISIS fighters had remained relatively constant, around 20 to 30,000. And the numbers just didn't add up. And over time, the numbers of said ISIS fighters continued to accumulate to the point where now if you look at numbers from July, you have a special operations commander who's saying that the United States and this coalition has killed between 60 and 70,000 ISIS fighters when there was only in 2014 20 to 30,000 to begin with. So like what was happening? Are they actually killing ISIS fighters? How do they even make that determination? And at the same time they were saying I think at the time it was maybe around 24 admitted civilian deaths. And that just didn't add up to me. It really was striking. And and both Anand and I had been doing reporting from Iraq in which we'd found just numbers that were completely off. We saw a very different reality on the ground. And that civilian death toll was not being acknowledged. There's like a cyclical nature to these narratives of, of the Iraq and, and Afghanistan war where like I'm thinking I'm putting myself back in February 2016. I kind of remember like right as Obama was on his way out, there was a kind of a like, but the airstrikes, you know, like that story kind of revived after it had kind of gone quiet for a couple years. How did you consider those sort of cycles in in the public's understanding of the war when you were conceiving the project? So one of the things I knew about this anti-ISIS air war was that so many Americans didn't even know about it. Right. They thought that going to war meant, you know, whether or not we send troops to Syria after a chemical attack, right? Mm-hmm. That was what people considered was going to war. Yeah. And the United States had been bombing Iraq and Syria almost daily for several years at that point. And so the American public's understanding of when we're at war when it comes to something like airstrikes is it's not entirely considered war anymore. And, and a large part of that is because U.S. troops are not suffering losses the way they did during the peak of surge periods in Iraq and Afghanistan. And that's really when you saw both an anti-war movement, but you also saw an incredible American understanding that this war was happening. But with the switch to the air war, especially under a president like Obama, 
I think many people who were concerned with civilian death tolls before or who were thinking about constraining executive power after George W. Bush were not applying necessarily those same expectations and standards under the Obama administration. And and just to give you a sense of this, since The Uncounted was published, several senior members of the Obama administration have come out to say, you know, with respect to civilian casualties, what we did fell short. And they talk about this switch to this air war, this shift in who's suffering the consequences of war and the American public letting it go unchecked in many ways that other wars weren't. So you're starting thinking about this story and what's it like trying to assemble something like this, not knowing where ISIS is going to be in one year, where the ISIS narrative is going to be in one year. It's such a huge part of the story. Um, how do you how do you regard that when you're taking on a project this big? That really wasn't a factor for me, to be mm-hmm. honest with you. Like this was going to matter no matter what. Mm. I think that the challenge was in getting people to care right. about something like the civilian death toll. And really, for me, this was about accountability. Yeah. So the United States had been bombing Iraq and Syria since August of 2014. It was an unprecedented air campaign. You're looking essentially at around 25,000 airstrikes, which have multiple engagements each. So and that's, that's multiple per day during mm-hmm. that entire exactly. period. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Until okay. very recently, until a few weeks ago, there were airstrikes every day since August 2014 in Iraq and Syria. And that's only now just winding down. I mean, I didn't know when I first went there how long this investigation would take. I didn't know the extent to which I'd be able to gain access to certain territories or if I would even be able to do a systematic sample, which is what I was able to do in this case. And I, I think the first time that I went, obviously, I was talking to lots of survivors and so many families, people who had lost family members in airstrikes and then had to sneak back into ISIS territory and dig them up in order to prove to get death certificates so they could file a compensation claim with the Iraqi government. And I know early on, I think by May of 2016, I had met the main character in the story, Basim Razo, who you know I'd heard from mutual friends and that you know a relative of his was somebody I'd gone to school with, and so I reached out to her. And did you? Is that how you found him in mm-hmm, the first place? Okay, mm-hmm. so so I'd known somebody. Friends of friends connection was the first connection exactly. to, to Basim Raza. Yeah. What did um, what was the information that you first received about him? So I'd heard about the airstrike, and so people from Michigan had been talking about it. I think later on. Bossom's cousin's wife, Serena Grewell, a professor at Yale, had written an op-ed in the New York Times about it. So I'd heard a little bit about the story from people, and I'd reached out. But, I mean, at the same time, I was talking to dozens of other survivors, and, and right. Bossom Razo obviously stood out for a few different reasons. He had lived in the United States for a while. He's really this incredible character, and, and he documented so well what had been happening to him. Ultimately, though, as I was continuing to investigate, I saw that what happened in his case mirrored the overall trends in this large sample, the sample of 103 airstrikes that I went to. I went to the site of every single airstrike in three towns that had formerly been held by ISIS. And one of the biggest reasons for civilian deaths were what appeared to be intelligence failures where there was no discernible ISIS target nearby, that's what had happened to Basim Razo and his family. And he just became 
a story that I thought would work, you know, both on and then I thought would work really well narratively. But also the airstrike on Boston Razo's home was what's known as a deliberate airstrike. It means that it was planned possibly over weeks and months instead of over hours or days. And a majority of the coalition airstrikes from the beginning of the coalition campaign through June of 2017 were dynamic airstrikes carried out very swiftly. The ones in which that were deliberate, the ones that take longer to plan, that are vetted in these ways that are conceivably of a higher standard because of the time that's allotted. So it just seemed fair to test the coalition in the main example in a case in which they're employing some of the highest thresholds. And and that's that's what his case supposedly was. So, I mean, he's kind of the perfect subject for a story because what he was doing is almost what a journalist would do in trying to document what had happened to him. But you said the, the story is 12,000 words? I think so, yeah. 12,000 mm-hmm. words. He's, his story is maybe a quarter to a half of the story. Was that an easy choice? Were there other people who were like, wow, that would have been also an incredible person to be this at the center of this story? I mean, there were so many incredible survivors that I met. And I think ultimately, Basim was the center of this story for the reasons that I mentioned, especially because you know, we could write to him in a way we had this sort of access. And, you know, I talked to him nearly every day. Americans could understand him. He speaks English. And so there was this great podcast on the daily about his story. Oh, yeah, that was actually Check that out. If you <laughs> listen to this interview, check that out. And also listen to Michael Barbaro on this show. Plugging, right. plugging, plugging. Yeah, plug um, away. So, I mean, yeah, he's an incredible subject. But you had talked earlier about, like, getting people, like, reaching people with this story how did you like how did you think about balancing the larger statistical numeric data journalism story with the immediate personal story um of what happened to him so that that was tough and the writing of this was something we struggled with because how do you take you'll very rarely see an investigation that's also literary and <laughs> weaves these things together that's very rare, rare right it's almost like if you took like a Times Magazine story, which would be the story of him, and like an A1 story about drone strikes and the statistics around them, and you kind of like shook them up. Kind of, yeah. I mean, it was a systematic investigation, so yeah. one that took a long time but met some of the highest standards of social science. And it was also a Times Magazine story. Yeah. I mean, yes. That's where it was published. But um, it was taking... The narrative of someone like Bossom and yeah. weaving it in with these bigger picture findings and this understanding not just of him and Mosul's history, but of this coalition-led air war and these hundreds of other airstrikes yeah. and these dozens of videos and this visit to this base in Qatar that very few reporters get to go to. And so it was, I think that the writing and the weaving together was a struggle for us, but that we were both really happy ultimately with the outcome. And so what I hoped, and I think just from the feedback that we've gotten, what I hoped would happen did, which is that Americans could read this and relate to Bossom and care about him and understand what happened to his family, but also understand where it fell within the scheme of all of these airstrikes, that actually such a large percentage of these are, that we documented at least, were the result of what's likely an intelligence failure, that 
Such a large percentage of these are people whose stories would never get told. And at the end of the day, I think what's most important is an understanding of guilt until proven innocence. And that's something that is one of the things that I had to account for when I was doing this reporting was the question of, well, how do you know that they're not ISIS? And I had to prove that for each of these cases of civilian death. So just in the sample of 103, you're looking at 75 civilian deaths. And even more when you go outside of the official sample, right? Yeah. For each of those cases, I had to meet that threshold of, well, how do you know that they're not ISIS? And I had to meet that, and it went through a lengthy fact check, and it was incredibly conservative in our accounting. We were so careful about it. But one of the things I wanted people to understand was just how unfair that question is. Why aren't we asking our government, well, how do you know that they are ISIS? And that's a question that I think since 9-11 isn't being asked. When you look at the definition of a civilian, the definition of a civilian is that you are a civilian unless proven otherwise. And we no longer employ that standard, not just our government, but we as Americans, when we talk about this, when we think about what it means when there is somebody who's been implicated in a situation like this. And what you get from Bassem's story and what you see overall is that this is a family who were believed to be guilty until they were proven innocent. And the threshold for proving innocence as a civilian was so much higher than the threshold for the intelligence for an airstrike. When you're reporting in an atmosphere that's extremely fresh, I mean, within the last year, these places were um, liberated, and there's a very shadowy understanding of what was happening on the ground during the time when it was under ISIS control. What's it like asking people to sort of go back to that period and and interrogate their own experiences during that period. So you have to be so careful because you're talking about populations that are dealing with trauma. And so there's a level of sensitivity involved in the way you ask questions and how you approach people. But at the end of the day, this was about a lot of different kinds of vetting. So in all of these towns, I'd often go in with different people. So the first time I went into Kayar, I went in with a local blacksmith. The second time I went in, I think I went in with a member of the federal police. The third time, it was with a local sheikh. So you're getting different viewpoints. And, you know, I vetted and cross-checked all of these civilian deaths. So I, I looked not just at civilian deaths from airstrikes, but civilians who'd been executed by ISIS. And so I would go to the federal police and I would ask them for names and I would just interview tons of people about the names of civilians who'd been either executed or killed in airstrikes. And, you know, I often went to health clinics if, or hospitals, asked for if they had them. And often they didn't have autopsies, but the director of the health clinic would know which bodies had come in. And so that sort of an accounting would happen. And that surprised me when I saw that, for example, in Kayara, there had been 18 civilians executed by ISIS. And I think we documented 43 civilian deaths as a result of airstrikes. That surprised me. I was not expecting that. And I remember when I when I mentioned that fact when I was at the U.S. Air Base in Qatar, at what's known as the, as the Combined Air Operations Center, it's sort of the, the nerve center for this air campaign. And when I brought up that statistic, the first question I was met with was, well, how do we know that those are coalition airstrikes? And so what you know, I had to then do, and this was maybe one of the biggest reporting challenges, was getting the coalition to check all 103 coordinates from that sample when at most, if you look at whom they've checked 
coordinates for in the past, I think at a maximum they'll do about like a handful. So yeah. even with me in the beginning, they had said, we'll look at about four for you. What would have happened if they had just refused? You know, you reach that point in reporting and they're like, sorry, we can give you 10. But that's what they did. Yeah. They said that. And so I just pushed back. They said yeah. four. We'll look at four for right. you. And I said, no, listen, here's why I need this. And yep. we went back and forth. But, you know, ultimately one of the things that I had said was, listen, I I don't want to have to write that you would only check four because right. that's what I will ultimately have to write if that's what you will do. And there were, <laughs> there were so many generals CC'd on these emails and Eventually, it was to the credit of the Air Force, um, the Air Command and at the KOC that agreed to check these coordinates, um, whereas the coalition based in Kuwait, you know, had said, listen, we don't have the staff or resources to do this. And, and so someone else with the staff and resources to do it did do it. But that took that was a process, not just even in terms of getting that embed at, at that airbase was a process of months. And originally I was told, no, nothing for you to see here. Uh, we can't accommodate you at this time. It was just pushing back constantly. And so it took a level of time and effort. And ultimately, it, it paid off in getting all of the sets of coordinates checked. And then to be able to then look up their own videos and show that, hey, you're telling me that anything more than 50 meters away from a coalition airstrike in your logs is not a coalition airstrike. But here's a video you guys uploaded uh, showing this airstrike in the place where I had said it occurred, and you're telling me the nearest airstrike was 600 meters away. What's going on here? 600 meters away is very far away. How can you say that when there is this video showing it on the compound I'd indicated? And I think that was very telling to me that beyond just showing this ratio of civilian death, we were able to document the extent to which these logs or the way that airstrike engagements are recorded and then searched when people bring up allegations of civilian casualties that they're real questions and the reliability of their GPS coordinate data. What is the burden on, I guess, the military as a whole, to be honest? You know, if the military lies about this, can they just say, well, we're allowed to lie about this? And, you know, what is the whole relationship to transparency like why were these videos on youtube in the first place like what is this sort of on again off again honesty about these airstrikes what does it mean to you well i think there's a question about there's a distinction between transparency and the veneer of transparency and so yeah these videos were on youtube but they were on youtube to showcase the success the precision right. they uploaded a fraction of the actual number of airstrikes but even within that fraction i was able to document those those inconsistencies. Now, in the case of Bassem Razo, they had uploaded that airstrike to YouTube. They had called it a VBIED facility. And even that, by the way, was so it was erroneous to begin with. But if you, you know, I also obtained the investigation report that was prompted by my reporting and my questions to them. I was able to obtain that through FOIA. It was one of dozens I'd requested. And it stated in the story that, you know, we obtained this in April yeah. through the Freedom of Information yeah. Act. And that was one I obtained specifically because I made an argument that I think is so important. And it was that, listen, this is somebody who is erroneously seen and perceived to be ISIS right. and fears for his life. Releasing these documents to me will be helpful in not just the story I'm writing, but in the publication of the fact that you acknowledge that he's a civilian. Your investigation shows that. For him to have these documents would be enormously helpful to him. Right. And so what I think the story has done, and I have 
many, many more FOIA requests in right now that are specifically asking for these documents because they can be so helpful in terms of protecting life uh, from harm. There's a lot of revenge that people who've been hit by airstrikes fear often that local forces will antagonize them, will target them in retaliatory attacks because they were hit in airstrikes. And these are civilians. They're documented to be civilians. You can show it, but if the wrong occupying force, if the wrong government authorities, if authorities from other areas are there, if in some cases people are very fearful of the fact that Shia militias could show up, it would be justification not just for the seizure of their property, but of detention, of their execution. There's a lot of you know, I've documented many cases in which local authorities would hear about ISIS collaborators, would tie them up and leave them in houses, you know, to come back for interrogation and leave. And when they left, local vigilante groups would execute them, often right. with their knowledge. And so there is a real fear. And these documents need to be made public. But what it comes back to is the American public needs to care. They need to demand it. And for many of the reasons I talked about earlier, the American public often isn't familiar with this war that's happening. And more than that, there is, I think there's an unfortunate result that is specific to the threat of ISIS, which is that some people and even some government officials are comfortable with some of these casualties. Not co- Nobody's comfortable with these casualties. Nobody's happy that they're happening. Nobody isn't sad about them. But Essentially, the threat of ISIS is seen to be so barbaric. And of course, ISIS is barbaric. We documented as many cases as we could of when ISIS was also inflicting harm upon these. For example, Bassem Razo's family members had been hurt by ISIS. His nephew had been, he'd received 10 lashes for wearing a Western t-shirt and having a Western haircut. And while that's the case, some people are willing to allow some of the the so-called collateral damage that they wouldn't find acceptable in other circumstances. They're willing to allow it in this case because ISIS is seen to lower that threshold of what's acceptable. When you were doing this reporting, you're casting such a wide net, 103 of these bombings. Did you find also, you know, for every, wow, this was a person that was targeted as the highest level of being, this is definitely in ISIS headquarters, this meets the highest threshold. Did you find instances where you're like, wow, I thought that this was a civilian one, but actually this was an ISIS bombing or anything where like it went the other way or something totally counterintuitive happened once you started looking into it? Yeah, I mean, as I dig deeper, I definitely found, not with respect to the airstrike attacks, but for example... This is separate from the invest- th- yeah. this particular investigation. There was definitely a couple from Ramadi. And this was so interesting as I dug more deeply into it. But I was looking at this neighborhood in Ramadi that had been taken over by ISIS. And there was a family that had, there were a husband and wife, and they had two children. And they, you know, I had met them first in Erbil. The wife had, when they were trying to escape ISIS rule, she had stepped over a an ISIS IED and lost part of her leg. And they also had family members who they had lost in in airstrikes, people who had been, there's a famous case locally at least of a local game that was being played in Ramadan of 2015 in which there was an airstrike on this field where people were playing this game. It's called Mehebis. It's 
a popular Ramadan game where you hide a ring in your hand and the opposite team has to guess whose hand it's in. Um, yeah. <laughs> and they were playing that game. They'd been allowed to play that game in this field um, called Dolphin Square. And, you know, they had lost members of their family in that. And so I thought that they were this, you know, this incredible couple who had sort of experienced both sides of ISIS and airstrike oppression were fascinating. They were in this neighborhood I was reconstructing. And, you know, as I continued to interview other people from this neighborhood, you know, some of their extended family were like, well, you know that this man was an ISIS collaborator, don't you? And I was like, tell me more about that. And <laughs> and this really complicated <laughs> well, this complicated story began to emerge of someone who he, you know, he used to operate a tobacco shop, which was not allowed when ISIS took over. And so he switched to a money change shop and ISIS would come to him to exchange money. And as a result, they afforded him and his family some privileges. They allowed them the use of a cell phone. They had some small advantages, and they did so for economic reasons, not right. ideological ones. And what it showed me was not that, you know, here are all these liars. It showed me that more complicated reality of why some people may join forces with ISIS and why they did in many cases. In this case, it was a very modern family, they did not do so for ideological reasons, but they found it reasonable given their economic circumstances, that they saw a new government in power and it was a leg up. Right. So what was it like? Had you ever written a piece with another person before in this way? I've definitely collaborated with people and particularly when I worked, I spent three years at the PBS series Frontline yeah. um, producing, writing, reporting. You know, I worked in teams a lot there. And so that was, you know, obviously I'm used to team environments. But this was different in that it was a collaboration over nearly two years. Yeah. And it was writing with another person something that is that extensive. And, you know, writing is a, there, <laughs> there are portions of it where I'm sure you can see what is very clearly me. And there are portions of it where you can see Anand very clearly. That line about Agatha Christie, <laughs> that was definitely him. <laughs> yeah. I and, mean, yeah, you're both stylistic writers to begin with you know I, I still think about like some of the like images in his book uh, you know sort of poetic images and stuff like that like how do you put two start things like that together yeah I mean we just trusted each other we knew we teamed up not just because we had this shared interest in this but because we saw the strengths of the other's work and you know Anand is such a phenomenal writer I definitely learned so much from him you know, as an investigative reporter, you know, he was interested in, in my sort of sense of the systematic investigations I do. And so I think that we acknowledged the expertise the other had in, in these ways and tried to teach each other along the way. So it was a really healthy collaboration in that sense. For someone who has such broad interests and you're not a staff writer locked to any specific publisher or anything like that, like how do you organize yourself around these projects? I know that you also you teach I do teach. Yeah, I'm actually a contributing writer at the Times oh, Magazine are a now. Okay. Now I am. Okay. <laughs> and, Congratulations! Um, thank you so much. Um, um, but like, w when you take these giant topics that really could be broken apart in all kinds of different ways, and you're not on like a regular beat where you're turning in something every month or two or anything, like how do you how do you conceive of that and think about it in terms of your time and getting paid and all of that? Right. Well, I think it helps to, you know, I teach a course at CUNY. I'm a Future of War fellow at New America. Certainly, there are grants out there for people who are doing reporting, and, and all of that's helpful. 
But I don't think this project would have been possible any other way unless I had had that freedom and time to explore this in depth. There's no way that we could have done this as staffers at an institution. Nobody gives you that kind of freedom or time to just, you know, run off and explore and dig deep and figure out what the story is before you pitch it, um, which I think is really important. Um, For me, what matters most is systematic investigation, and I think that's different from you know, an investigative story that might explore one case. It's about stepping back and understanding the big picture and getting to the heart of something and having, you know, it doesn't have to be a numbers game, but being able to say, look, I looked at a wide enough sample of whatever this issue is and and here's what this tells us. That is what I crave and love the most. And so I'm constantly sort of digging into multiple different things and collecting all of it. And and I think in all of the investigations I've done, it's built on a lot of this real-time collection of information and reporting and ongoing efforts that I'm doing, whether it was you know ghost schools, and I'd been really interested in Afghanistan for a long time, uh, you know whether it was a film that I worked on when I was at Frontline about airstrikes in Syria. All of it is helpful to the works I'm continuing to do. Where do you go from here? What's the story you would, uh, what else would you spend two <laughs> well, years of your life on? I can't on? tell you too much about what I'm working on, but I, I can, you know, I can talk about some of the issues that I've been reporting on over time and that I'll continue to. And of course, detention in this age when many Americans, because Guantanamo is no longer accepting additional prisoners or because, you know, the U.S. isn't running an Abu Ghraib-like prison in Iraq, that we tend to think that a U.S. role in detention is over. So I've been digging into what the realities of that are. Um, Similarly, I've been looking at, you know, in the United States, at the surveillance of Muslims in the United States, the parts of laws and legal frameworks that we don't even talk about anymore, things that predate 9-11, there was a set of laws in, in the 90s known as the secret evidence laws that basically allowed the use of secret evidence and the deportation of individuals who were accused of terrorism. But the nature of the allegations were never revealed to them. So you could wind up in court and have no idea what you were accused of or by whom. And it was incredibly controversial at the time. Few people talk about it. But every single case known to the public in which these secret evidence laws were used, every single person was either Muslim or Arab. Uh, and it wrecked havoc in many of these communities. And nobody's really talking about that anymore, but it's something that I've been looking at, certainly in the contemporary era of different kinds of surveillance of refugee populations and how they're being surveilled. These are all things that I, 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 I operate slowly, but I go deep. So it just takes some time. How are you feeling about leaving academia ultimately? <laughs> I feel good about it. Um, I feel great about it. Do you I feel think like that, in some alternate timeline you're like a like an academic living in like London or something? I don't think so. I think I like the power to reach people quickly, but at the end of the day, I think academia and, and also with Anand, for example, you know, he just he got his PhD while we were working on this in mathematical sociology and certainly the social science and the methods we used in terms of cluster sampling and how to ensure that you know what we were doing was with met some of the highest social science standards all of that's important to me and and so I'll continue to borrow from academia I'll continue to borrow from even just some of the social science work I've done in the past but I think journalism 
is best when it combines all of these areas of ground reporting, of intense FOIA, of, you know, interrogating the source, or in this case, the subject, right, in this case, the government, as much as possible and hitting everything from every angle you can. Thank you so much for this interview. Thank you for having me. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, thanks very much to Azmat Khan for coming in before her trip, I believe, to Iraq uh, a couple days later. So, hey, Azmat, you're probably in Iraq now. Uh, thanks to Janelle Pfeiffer for editing this episode. Our intern is Angela Velez. My co-hosts are Max Linsky and Evan Ratliff. Thanks to them for holding down the fort in my uh, paternity leave. Uh, thanks to our sponsors, MailChimp, BarkBox, and uh, the informal sponsor, my new show, Coin Talk. It's me and Jay Caspian Kang. Check out his long form podcast uh, talking about everything that is weird, fun, and occasionally terrible in the world of cryptocurrencies. Uh, just type Coin Talk into the um, pod catcher of your choice, podcast app of your choice, or you can go to medium.com slash coin talk to get all of the new episodes and transcripts of the episodes and show notes and all kinds of other good stuff. Thank you. We'll see you next week. Why do you run? Why does anyone? I always thought that runners loved running. And that's not the case. Most runners hate running, (laughs) but they choose to do it. In the new docuseries, Running Sucks, brought to you by Team Milk, Abby Ayers learns why women runners everywhere are driven to go the distance. It really is about taking my power back and proving myself wrong. Team Milk is about fueling women's performance and helping them along their marathon journeys. You can sign up now for the inaugural Every Woman's Marathon taking place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16th, 2024. Learn more and register at everywomansmarathon.com.